I want to start by saying that there are so many parallels in this story of Jonah to our current culture. And I don't know about you, but I've been really enjoying this series. I really uh, got to enjoy what Debbie had to say last week. Thank you, Debbie, for filling in. But um, uh, there are some, just this, this story just lines up with where we're at. And I'm not going to always show you the parallels. You're going to have to find them kind of on your own. Um, but there's so much in this that speaks to our culture. But let me start with saying that I believe the Bible. The original manuscript is the Word of God. I believe the Bible reveals God to us. It's authoritative in our lives. But God was before and He exists outside this book. He's not limited to our theology. We cannot contain God. The Bible is not wrong. It's never wrong. It's our interpretation at times that is flawed and erred. But the Bible does not just contain God. It reveals God to us. And the book of Jonah has functioned throughout history as such for us today and for Israel. And when you read the book of Jonah, you see that God was much bigger than Israel ever knew he was or imagined he was. And so let me uh, kind of catch everyone up to where we are in the story in case you haven't been here. Um, we have this prophet running from God. Uh, God told him to go to Nineveh, which is the, uh, the capital of Assyria, to this people group who were not worshiping Yahweh. They were not worshiping the God of the universe. And Jonah has no desire to do this. And so he jumps on a ship headed to Tarshish. And we've come to know through the story that Tarshish was this main port of Spain. And so Jonah is not just wanting to go somewhere where he can ignore God, right? Where he can take his mind off things, you know, get away for a little while. He wants to leave the relationship. He wants to put God in his past. He wants to walk away from his calling, his role, everything. He wants to get away. And on the way, we find this God pursuing him. And this fierce storm hits. And the sailors, they begin to have this spiritual dialogue with their gods. They want to figure out what's going on. And ultimately, they realize that they're dealing with the God of the universe. And their response is very similar to our response to God. Well, we better work very hard to please him now. And so they begin rowing back to shore. They want to drop Jonah back off on the shore unharmed. They don't want to anger God anymore. But that doesn't work. And so ultimately, they throw Jonah overboard, right? And the sailors who worshipped idols end up worshipping Yahweh. And I don't know about you, but I find this very ironic. That those who don't know God in this story, they're the ones that end up worshipping him. And the ones that claim to worship God, they decide to obey, uh, disobey him. And they run from him. And they end up being thrown overboard. Somewhat ironic. And so now we have this great fish, this, this beast that swallows up Jonah. And it's in the belly of a whale where Jonah finally decides, hey, it's a good time to start a prayer life, right? You know, I would have suggested sooner, but he found it in there. But that's us, right? God speaks to us. He tells us to do something, and we run. And we're like, you know what? I think it's time to take a vacation. I'm just going to travel. I'm going to get away. This is my life, my choices. I'll do what I want to do. Your complete autonomy, right? We don't need God. My decisions, my choices. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself in the belly of a whale, right? Metaphorically. When you find yourself in a dark place, when you start to make your own choices, confined, you're, you're shut in, you can't escape. 
And for Jonah, this dark place birthed this prayer of thanksgiving, the one that James read earlier. And more often than not, for many of us, we think of prayer, we think of it as our, our Christian duty, right? So we, th- we say things like, well, I don't pray enough, or I-, I-, I wish I could pray more. Maybe we slide a prayer in right before dinner so we feel good about things, right? But when we're in a place of distress, prayer becomes central for us, right? But when we're not under that distress, prayer is almost uh, unnecessary for us. And so God, in his severe mercy, allows us to to be in these places of darkness. Some are from our own consequences, like like Jonah and his choice to run. Maybe there's sin that we're wrapped up in and we come face to face with it in our relationships or, or in our soul. And whenever consequences show up, whether in our families or in our work or, or in our thought life, we become confined. It's a dark place. But it's not just in our consequences from our behavior and our choices. Sometimes our circumstances of life bring us into this place where we're not in control. It might be a health issue, relationship issues. It might be tragedy that strikes and you're no longer in control and you find yourself in the belly of the beast and no one wants to be there no one enjoys confinement right whether it's our own fault or not we want God to be on our side right we when we choose to run from God we want him to be excited for us we want him to 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 make the the trip to Tarshish a a pleasure cruise right we want God to be our captain stooping and say well come aboard we've been expecting you right let's run and I dated myself there if you got the analogy there but we we want God to be happy about us going away we want the love boat right to Tarshish I have the life you've always wanted I want you to be happy and comfortable I don't want any stress let's run away listen God is not interested in you being comfortable he's interested in you being in a place that is receptive to him dependent on him never thinking that you are God but in a place where you're constantly drinking in the grace and it takes severe mercy in a place of darkness to turn towards God and to awake from your slumber and that's what Jonah chapter 2 was all about so if you have a Bible turn with me to Jonah chapter 3 I want to give you the context of this story Jonah chapter 3 God's plan of universal salvation is taking place here God's desire to redeem everything, to redeem all of creation, all of the earth, is his plan. But now shalom doesn't exist. And shalom, we understand, is is the word for peace, but it's so much more than that. It's not like the absence of war, because within that there's still this indifference and apathy that exists. In the Bible, I'm going to read this to you. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness. Uh, delight it's a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights shalom in other words is the way things ought to be Uh, it says that hebrews hebrew words go far beyond their pronunciation Uh, each hebrew word conveys feeling intent emotion Shalom is more than just simply peace. It is complete peace. It's a feeling of contentment, completeness, wholeness, well-being, and harmony. And for uh, out of Strong's Concordance, 
Shalom means completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, the absence of agitation or discord, meaning to be complete and perfect and full. In Judaism, shalom was this idea that all of life, the systems, the rulers, all of creation work together for the harmony of all. If there were systems that we have created that we benefit from and others don't, and instead they are oppressed and they're discriminated against, there is not shalom for everyone. The imagery that you get in the Old Testament for shalom is this idea of fabric. And all these systems are, are woven together and they create something uh, beautiful and strong. But when the systems begin to unravel, there's this loss of strength. There's this loss of beauty. Uh, it turns into chaos. And, the, and chaos is the opposite of shalom. Universal salvation, universal shalom. God is redeeming all of creation. Okay, so back to the story. We got Jonah. After Jonah chapter 2, he's, he's, Jonah 3, he's vomited back onto the shore by this whale, right? And so the story is that he goes into Nineveh and he preaches and the people are redeemed, right? End of story. Very linear, right? Except that's not how the Bible reads. That's not how traditional stories go. That's not how your story and my story goes, right? The stories that we often read in books and in novels, they have a beginning. And then there's like this, this middle, this climax, this, this conflict. And then there's an ending, right? It's very linear. But that's not what's happening here in Jonah. Instead of, it's a story of redemption where there is a beginning, a middle, and then a new beginning. And, and our stories, your story, my story, are full of new beginnings. And here's what I mean. There is a space between Jonah chapter 2 and Jonah chapter 3. It's not the end of verse uh, of Jonah and 2 and then right into 3. There's, we know at least... Nineveh, according to the map, is 550 miles from the shore. Jonah's vomited onto the shore, right? So he's got 550 miles to travel before he gets to Nineveh. We know that back then it said about 20 miles a day someone could walk. So he, we got 28 days at least if he's walking to Nineveh. In this, in, this, in this time where Jonah finds his new beginning. So the first couple of verses of Jonah chapter 1 they're very similar to the first couple verses of Jonah chapter 3. It's almost as if God is saying to Jonah, look, Jonah, just because you disobeyed me, I'm still with you. We're not done yet. We're going to do this thing the right way, so we're starting over. And it fits kind of into this idea that we referenced in the first week, the book of Jonah, of a, a possible of a parable or a metaphor, right? Before a metaphor for Israel, because if you know historically, this is the time where the people of Israel, the God's chosen people, have been metaphorically vomited back onto the land of Israel by the Babylonians. They've been released back to their own land. And now God is telling them, I am with you guys. I was with you in exile. I was with you in the belly of the beast, and I'm still with you. And if you want to be playmakers in this universal shalom. My plan has not changed. This is a new beginning for you and for me. And so two things I want to show you today. One is that God's vision for universal salvation outreaches the arm of his particular election. And two is that true repentance is when we allow God's vision 
for shalom, to critique our lives, and then we respond accordingly. And it's not just a moment of confession, but it may include that. It's not just tweaking a few things in our lives, but to allow that the, all that we are, all that we do to be critiqued by God's vision of universal shalom, and then we respond accordingly. Jonah, chapter 3. Verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. If you line up the uh, two verse, verses from chapter 1 and the two first verses from chapter 3, you see that God's command is slightly tweaked. The first one was go and call out against the wickedness of Nineveh. The second is go and call out to Nineveh. Against in the first and then the second time it's go to them. Why the different tone of the message? Well, maybe it's to show Jonah that God was up to way more than what Jonah, what Jonah was expecting. In chapter 1, we think God is set to destroy Nineveh for their wickedness. That their evil has come up against God. Well, what was their evil? I don't have time today, but if you read the book of Nahum, which is just two books away, it's four, four pages long, that it'll, it describes Nineveh. But in short, it's described as the lion's den, a, a place of injustice, a place where injustice is bred. If you know anything about nature, the lion would kill its victim and then it would tear it apart so that there would be pieces for the, the lioness and there would be pieces for the cubs, that they would all get it. And at the same time, uh, uh, you have Nineveh, the metaphor of Nineveh, that they've created these systems to make sure that the privileged people of Nineveh were fed, that they were thriving, that they were taken care of, they were getting what they needed. But at the same time, these systems were oppressing and marginalizing people. And God was tired of these systems and this way of ruling and so in Jonah 1, we have this evil has come up against me. And now God is sending Jonah to redeem Nineveh. Well, that doesn't go very well with God's people, right? It doesn't go very well for Jonah. Because the Jews, they had this arrogance and pride in that moment. They were God's people. And now God is telling them to go to Nineveh, the people that we hate. And he's saying that they belong to him too. That that this God that was ours was, is with them too? That God was going to give them a chance too? Isaiah 19, verse 25. You don't need to uh, turn there. Let me turn there for you. It's proof of what I just said there. Isaiah 19, verse 25. It says, the Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork in Israel, my inheritance. He references this idea that these Ninevites belong to him as well. Back to Jonah 3. Let me read uh, verses 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began preaching, or began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. 
A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest of the least, put on sackcloth. Verse 4, we, we, we read this idea of uh, the word overthrown. And this has a, a couple different meanings, this word. There's the idea first of destruction. So you have like cities of, of Edom and, and uh, Babylon and, and Sodom and Gomorrah. You have these cities that were destroyed, they were overthrown. But then you have this idea of reform, where God is overturning the hearts of the people of Nineveh. Not the stones, but the hearts. That God is about to destroy the systems there. He's not going to let this continue. That he, I love these people just like I love you, Jonah. They're mine. So no more injustice. But he was going after their hearts and souls before he destroyed the system. And ultimately, we know if we read on that Nineveh is overthrown and destroyed. Um, but not before God changes some of the hearts there. So God is saying, look, Jonah, look, Jews, look, Christian America, quit boxing me in. Quit uh, limiting, th limiting me to your understanding of who my salvation is for or, or the way in which you think I should work. And so the question that you and I face today is the same that Jonah and the people of Israel faced in their time. You might want to write down this to ask yourself and remember this later. Here it is. Can God still be good when he works outside his people's interpretation of him? Can God still be good when he works outside his people's interpretation of him? He's telling his people that my plan for universal salvation outreaches my particular election. It wasn't just for the chosen people of Israel. It's saying that it's also for the Ninevites. And it's not up to you or me or this church to lock people in or to lock people out. God says, I have not asked you to create a system. It's funny that in evangelicalism, we want to quantify everything, right? We want to manage it so you're saved, you're not saved, you're uh, whatever kind of a thing, right? We want to, but when we do that, we damn the whole idea of it when we try to, try to box in what God is doing. Especially when we begin to understand what redemption and renewal is. I found this picture on the internet kind of funny of how we box God into our theology. Us shoving God into a box. Come on, God, get in there, right? God's bigger than our theology. God is saying, listen, I'm for the people. And I'm going to redeem them and I'm going to save them. And you can be a part of this or you can miss out on it. But you cannot limit or control me. I work outside of your theology. I'm going to read a quote from C.S. Lewis. This is from the Chronicle of Narnia series. This is from the book, The Last Battle. I want to read this to you. This is Tisrock. He's standing before Aslan. He says, then I fell at his feet and thought, surely this is the hour of death for the lion who is worthy of all honor, will know that I have served Tosh all my days and not him. Nevertheless, it is better to see the lion and die than to be Tisrock of the world and live and not to have seen him. But the glorious one bent down his golden head and touched my forehead with his tongue and said, Son, thou art welcome. But I said, Alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but the, the servant of Tosh. He answered, child, all the service thou hast done to Tosh, I account a service done to me. 
Then my reasons of my great desire for wisdom and understanding, I overcame my fear and questioned the glorious one and said, Lord, is it then true as the ape said that thou and Tosh are one? Then the lion growled so that the earth shook, but his wrath was not against me and said, it is false. Not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites. I take to me the service which thou hast done to him. For I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me, and none which is not vile can be done to him. Therefore, if any man swear by Tosh and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he has truly sworn, though he know it not, and it is I who reward him. And then if any man do a cruelty in my name, then, though he says the name Aslan, it is Tosh whom he serves, and by Tosh his deed is accepted. Dost thou understand, child? I said, Lord, thou, thou knowest how much I understand, but I also, for the truth constrained me, yet I have been seeking Tosh all of my days. Beloved, said the glorious one, unless thy desire had been for me, thou wouldst not sought so long and so truly. For all find what they truly seek. We can't understand the idea of choice in time until we live beyond them. God is doing something great and powerful and beautiful and rich and deep. And his call is not to come understand it. It's come join the mission of reaching his people. That's his mission for Jonah. He says, I'm going to do things that don't make sense, that break your box, that break your theology, because this universal salvation surpasses all of that. And this was the message the Jews needed to hear. And they didn't want to. It's the message we need to hear, but many of us don't want to. Back to verse 5 of Jonah. The Ninevites believed God a, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, this really angers Jonah. It angered the people of Israel. Because if anyone was supposed to repent, it was the Jews, right? The story of Jonah tells us that these evil people of Nineveh, that they figured out something that God's people, who were instructed to do, and kept failing for the last thousand years. And they got it. They understood it. And it went far beyond a confession. They put on sackcloth, essentially saying that my true soul is humbled before God, that we are begging for mercy here. They're not faking it anymore. They said, we've taken off our Sunday church clothes and we put on sackcloth. It was this sign of submission. No more masks. Verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. I, uh, I have this love-hate relationship with Facebook. Um, uh, I, I love it, the way we were able to communicate and keep in touch. I, I hate the way we were able to uh, um, mis-contextualize mis, uh, uh, or, or misrepresent Scripture when we just throw verses out there and say, blah, there, truth bomb. Hey, I saw this post the other day on, 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 on Facebook, and it was referencing this part of the story of Jonah. And I, I thought it was, you know, funny, because that's, hey, that's where we're at. And it was someone trying to blame the president again 
for our conditions, right? It's the president's fault our nation is this way. He needs to repent first and then lead this nation back to God. And then in their delusional rant, they turned to scripture, right? Where they highlighted that this was what the king and who in Jonah did. This is what that he did. He led his people to repent in Jonah chapter 3. And I laughed and I was like, so adorable you are. But have you read the story, you know, that you, before you posted it? Because uh, that's not what happened. It's tragically humorous that uh, in our story of, of mankind, we have this history of blaming others for things. In the garden, it was, she made me eat the apple, right? And in the wilderness, we got, uh, it was Aaron who was in charge when they made the golden calf, right? It's the president's fault that my, it's not anything to do with the fact that my heart is bent towards sin. It's, it's his fault, right? This was a ground-up movement in Jonah 3. It didn't start with the king. It started with the people first. Their hearts were torn. They caught a glimpse of God's glory and they repented. And then this unjust king gets word of what's going on. And scripture says that he stands up. Now, if you understand kings, this, was, this, was, this is what's going on there. Man, that means he, he's leaving his throne. When people come to the king, he stays on his throne as an act of power. I'm not going to get up. I'm going to sit down and, and rule over you. But he stands up, and, and he stands in solidarity with his people. He says that we are all one in this wickedness. And so he exchanges his throne for a pile of ash. All right, I want to I want to close with this. I want the band to, to join me on stage. Let me read on verse 7. This is the proclamation he, he issued to Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds, or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. And did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. The king issues a proclamation to the people of Nineveh. He says, repent. And they take on this posture of humility. They begin to allow the way they live moving forward to be critiqued by God's vision of shalom. It says, let everyone turn from their wickedness, not just them, not just those people over there, but all of us, not the ones outside this, these walls, these doors, but all of us. If we're going to take following Christ seriously, it's time to turn inward and look in the mirror and see how our everyday personal life choices that we make inflict some sort of violence an impression on others it's time to stop and that's an idea that we all should get theoretically right stop being evil and start loving people but here's the one that we miss maybe we miss it because we're americans we're western evangelicals we're white privileged for whatever reason this one evades us for some reason now it's back to verse seven 
said, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. In ancient times, the beast, the animals, the herd, the flock, the man, these were symbols of the economy. And the king of this great and mighty Nineveh just admitted that we have created systems in our culture that makes us privileged. It makes us wealthy. It allows us to thrive, but causes others to be oppressed, to be marginalized, to be poor. He basically says, let's cut the systems off. Let's quit feeding them. This is not God's vision of shalom. And I know this might sound liberal to many of you, but if you read the Old Testament, these are the systems that God created. When they had the jubilee, he tells the wealthy landowners that all the stuff that you worked really hard for, it's not all yours. In fact, in Leviticus, and everyone loves Leviticus these days, in fact, the harvest said, when you have the harvest, leave some for the poor, some for the immigrant, some for the alien. Your systems must stop oppressing people. So bring the marginalized into your home because they are mine too. It's not enough to apologize or quit doing the convenient things. If we're really going to let God's vision of shalom critique our lives, it must also critique the systems that we play into. We have allowed systems in our culture and even in our churches make us privileged and others oppressed. And it needs to stop. And I know this is a really hard and heavy thing to do, Perhaps maybe this is why when asked about following him, Jesus said, carry your cross. Not just around your neck. His life critiqued the people in the systems of that day. And what did it get to him? It got him the cross, right? They killed him for it. Jesus was the embodiment of God's shalom. And it didn't win him any friends, right? He says, now you carry your cross. If you want to be a player in this universal shalom, you can't box God into systematic theology that works in your favor. You have to understand that God's plan of salvation outreached the boundaries that you and I set. And if you're one of his, if you're a Christ follower, and the Jews in this time, they, they felt this heavy, that we must allow God's vision of shalom to critique, uh, critique in your life, and you must respond accordingly. And that should lead you and I to repentance. But here's the deal. I don't have a list of instructions for you. The Ninevites, they didn't have a, a list of instructions. God had a picture of shalom. We must listen to him. And it starts by us looking inwardly and confessing the areas where we boxed him in and not allowed shalom to enter in. Stand with me as we pray. God, in the next few moments, speak to our hearts. Show us where we've wanted it our way, where we've wanted to dictate how you move, where we wanted to limit you and who your salvation was for. God, may we repent in this moment, quit boxing you in, allow you to move, to embrace the fact that you love, that you wish that none would perish that everyone would come to know you. God, if this is the first time we've heard the message that God loves us, 
and that he wants us to follow him. If that's you, I want you to, to repeat this in, in your heart. God, I hear your message today, and I want to give you my life. And I don't even know what that means, but I want to I follow you. I want to let go of what I've been holding on to and seek you. Forgive me of my sin. Make me new. We come before you today just as we are, broken, wounded. We ask for healing. Hear our cry as we turn from our ways and follow you. Pray, amen. I invite you to worship with me.